So we're continuing our series on total freedom. If you have your Bibles, open it to Matthew chapter 5. In this series, we've been breaking down the Beatitudes, the first eight statements that Jesus made in the greatest sermon of all time, his inaugural sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. They're eight pithy, they're power-packed, counterintuitive, countercultural statements. And if we walk in these truths, not principles, but truths, if we walk in these truths, this Christ-like character, then we will experience total freedom. And if we don't, we'll walk in bondage. It's a freedom that the world didn't give us, and it's a freedom that the world cannot take away. So let's go back and review some of these principles, some of these truths. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is how Jesus began the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is the decision to admit that we are powerless to change ourselves. We are powerless to save ourselves. But it doesn't end there. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the decision to hope. Though we can't change ourselves, we know somebody who can change us. Though we can't save ourselves, we know somebody who can save us, and therefore we hope. But we don't hope in things of the world, we don't hope in ourselves, we hope in Christ. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What an oxymoron, especially to Jesus' original hearers in this culture that was dominated by Aaron Rome. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth, not earn the earth, but inherit the earth. God will give it to them. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is a decision to yield my life to Christ's authority and lordship, trusting him to bless me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be filled. This is the decision to not allow my heart to be satisfied in this world but to be a soldier, to relentlessly pursue Christ until he and he alone satisfies my heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the decision to pray like David prayed throughout the Psalms and to every day lift my heart up to God, the only one who can heal my heart, restore my heart, unify my heart, uh, change the desires of my heart. To cause me to love God and love people the way I'm called to love. And to hold my heart up to God every day and pray, God, you are the master of my heart. You are sovereign over my heart. Change my heart, oh God. And then last week with our our guest speaker, Terry Caffey, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. This is the decision to release my offenders to the only one who has the right to judge. This is the decision to take myself off the throne and not play judge and to forgive my offenders. And in so doing, realize that when you forgive your offender, you're setting a prisoner free only to realize that that prisoner is yourself. Bitterness is bondage. The people who offended you will go on with their lives. It's not their bondage. Bitterness is your bondage. And when you release them to the one who judges justly, then you set a prisoner free to realize that prisoner 
was yourself. And so you exchange bitterness and resentment for forgiveness and love, and you walk in freedom. Because the only thing that can truly wound you about the wound is not the wound, but it's your decision not to forgive your offenders from the wound, because that's the only thing that will continue to allow them to control you and influence you with that wound. And you say, but you don't understand how severe the hurt was. Well, go back and listen to last week's testimony about Terry Cathy. But all the more, all the more, the more severe the wound, the more critical it is that we release our offender and we forgive our offender. Because the more critical it is that we're free from that wound and walk in healing and wholeness. And then, verse 10, today, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you do know that this flies in the face of most uh, televangelists that you see, where they'll preach, uh, you send me $49.95 and I will send you a handkerchief that we prayed over or some nonsense like this. Or if you are not wealthy, if you are not upgrading, if you don't have at least a 4,000 square foot house, if you're, not, if you're driving a beat up, a 10 year old Explorer rather than a brand new Mercedes, you don't have enough faith because God wants you to be wealthy. Well, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. What is persecution? Persecution is the price you pay for following Christ in an ungodly culture. And the more ungodly that culture, the more costly that price is going to be. But the more costly the price that you pay to follow Christ, the more that God will bless you. Jesus promises that if we follow him, two things are going to happen. One, this world will persecute us. Two, God will bless us as a result. The blessing may or may not be earthly, but it will certainly be heavenly, and it will certainly have eternal rewards. Blessed are those who are persecuted. If we follow Jesus, we will be persecuted. Jesus said, look at how they are going to treat me, and I'm the teacher, I'm the master. So be prepared and be certain. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Why did they persecute Jesus? Because of his righteousness. And this world is hostile to Christ-likeness. This world is hostile to godliness. The more Christ-like and the more godly we live, then the more hostile the persecution that we're going to experience. Jesus said, to follow me, if you really want to follow me, you'll have to pick up your cross and count the cost daily and follow me. And so if you're, if you're experiencing persecution, then we're going to see in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it's reason to absolutely and utterly rejoice. And if you're not experiencing persecution of some sort in this world, I have to ask you, are you truly following in the footsteps of Christ? Are you? Are you experiencing persecution? I think we live in a pretty ungodly world. I think we live in an extremely unchristlike culture. Are you following Christ? 
And as a result of that, are you incurring some persecution? Are you counting some cost to follow in the footsteps of Christ? And if you're not being persecuted, I have to ask you, do you love the world more than you love Christ? Because to follow Christ demands that we count some cost. What cost are you counting? What price are you paying to follow in the footsteps of Christ? So, let me read to you the status quo for followers of Jesus Christ. I'll just read it uh, out of Hebrews to you. Hebrews chapter 11, you can just listen. But this this is the cost of following in the footsteps of Christ. And sometimes we think, gosh, I'm, Lord, I'm, I'm following you, then why am I still having trouble? I'm following you, why, I, why am I still having problems? Your faith should struggle, and your faith should be in question if you follow Christ without incurring any cost or paying any price because God's word is proving untrue. But if you set your heart like Flint, like Christ did towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, to follow Christ, and you experience persecution, if you walk through difficulty, whether spiritual or whether physical, then you should rejoice because God's word is proving true. The author of Hebrews writes, what then shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samuel and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, who in weakness were turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and rooted foreign armies. Women received back their dead and raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings, and others even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and the mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were committed for their faith. You know, the very first murder in the history of the world was a result of somebody being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Adam and Eve had two kids, Cain and Abel. Abel gave an honorable, a righteous offering. And as a result of that, Cain was jealous and he was hostile. That's the culture of this world. Our world is aggressive and hostile toward righteousness. Our world loathes righteousness. And as a result of Abel's righteousness, Cain picked up the rock and he struck him on the head and he killed him. And so has been the pattern throughout all of human history. Abraham was persecuted because of righteousness. The two angels who went to visit Sodom and Gomorrah were persecuted because of righteousness. Uh, God's people all throughout the Old Testament were persecuted because of righteousness. Peter was crucified, even upside down, because of righteousness. The apostles were, were, were crucified and burned at the stake because of righteousness. And by conservative estimates, in solid news reports, by all conservative estimates, there's 100 to 150,000 martyrs, people who lose their lives because of faith in Christ today. Not throughout history, 
today, this year, in 2016, there will be 150,000, we'll, we'll take the conservative estimate, 100,000 people who sacrifice their lives today because they're following in the footsteps of Christ. Did you realize that's five people who sacrificed their lives for the cause of Christ to simply bear the name of Jesus? Every five minutes, somebody surrenders their life willingly when they could have avoided death if they just renounced Christ or, did, or decided to give lip service to some pagan god or false god. Since we've begun... About eight people, since we've begun this service, eight people across the world have already surrendered their life because they simply bear the name of Christ. And in the next five minutes, another one. All over the world. Persecution is the pattern. And the more ungodly the culture, the more intense the persecution, but the more intense the persecution the more God will be glorified through our lives. And let me ask you again. Are you paying some price to follow Christ? Are you counting some cost to walk in righteousness? And if you can't think of one off the top of your head, then I've got to ask, are you following Christ? So in looking at persecution, I just want to draw out some object lessons for you in relation to persecution through a case study in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. Uh, you can go there with me if you like. Daniel chapter 3. It's in the Old Testament. It's the persecution of sh three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How many of you guys have heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How many of you, I'm just curious, this is the first time you've heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Raise your hand. All right, very cool, very cool. So this is a great story. You're in for a treat. So in 586 B.C., Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, absolutely leveled uh, Judah, which is modern-day Israel and Jerusalem. And they just destroyed Jerusalem. I mean, they raised it down to the ground. They destroyed the temple, and they slaughtered everybody, except for the sharpest of the sharp and the brightest of the bright young male leaders. Thus, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when Babylon would conquer a culture, they would take the sharpest of the sharp, the brightest of the bright young leaders, they would import them into their culture, they would basically make them slaves, they would make them eunuchs, and then they would take them through a three-year course of their own culture's literature and wisdom, and they would try to glean and harness from these young leaders uh, to the benefit of their own community and culture and arts and science and so forth. Well, three of these exiles that they're called, these prisoners who would spend the rest of their life on foreign soil, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel as well, and these guys from that era, they would never go back to their homeland. There were some who would eventually go back, and we read about that in Nehemiah and Ezra, but, but these initial exiles, they were exiled, and the exile lasted for 70 years, as was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in a foreign country, modern-day Iraq. It was called Babylon. Well, the king of Babylon had a dream, 
And he had a dream. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 1 and 2. It was a dream of this incredible statue, and it represented the nations that would follow. The, the head was a head of gold, and Daniel interpreted the dream and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, that head of gold represents you in Babylon. And the, the chest of this huge, enormous statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, was silver. And Daniel said, that's the kingdom that's coming after yours. It's going to be richer than yours. Uh, or it won't be as rich as your kingdom, but it will be stronger as silver is richer, but, 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 uh, or stronger, but not as rich as gold. And that kingdom would be, would be Persia. And then the, the, the belly of bronze on the statue represented the subsequent kingdom, which was uh, Greece and Alexander the Great, which would come around in about 300 BC, which would be not as rich as yours, king, the gold, but bronze, it's stronger. And then the legs of this statue were, were iron. And that was Rome. I mean, two strong legs of iron, which represented impenetrable iron Rome, smashing everything in its path. And then the ten toes of clay mixed with iron, which would represent the, the, the kingdom, uh, an empire that would be an empire partly iron, so it'll be somewhat of that Roman in, in imperial jurisdiction, but also clay, meaning in ten toes, meaning maybe it's a federation of nations coming together. Many think that's the Antichrist end times, uh, perhaps European Union. Uh, but Daniel interpreted this dream. So you want to know what King Nebuchadnezzar did as a result? He built a statue from head to toe, huge that was made out of, guess what? Gold. <laughs> and basically, that was defying God, saying, oh no, there's no further subsequent empires that's coming after me. Uh, my, my kingdom, my empire is here to stay. And that's why he built a statue of gold from head to toe, because the gold in the dream rep represented Nebuchadnezzar. And then Nebuchadnezzar went a step further, uh, because this is, he's obviously very insecure, so he went a step further, and he made a decree all throughout his kingdom. And he said, anytime any of you hear the music playing, then everybody has to fall on their face and worship and give honor to this statue. And guess what that statue represented? Well, it was worship and it was honor to himself. So persecution. And here's where we pick up with four observations about persecution. Persecution is the price you pay for standing for God. Persecution is the price that you pay for standing for God. So, with that background, let's pick up with verse 7 of chapter 3. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nation and all the peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And this time, some astrologers came forward, and they denounced the Jews. Who were the Jews? Well, these three Jews specifically, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What are these guys doing? They're opportunistic. They're politicians at heart. They're jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's superior wisdom. And so they see an opportunity to cause them harm and to demote them and to have them killed. They said, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve you nor your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true? And to make a long story short, we'll go down to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, well, let me back up to verse um, 15. The king says to them, now, if you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, then all of this, and if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you don't worship it, you will be thrown down immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Again, a hundred thousand Christians are going to face this same choice this year. And since I last told you about the Christians who were killed every five minutes, two more Christians were just killed. Because they were faced with this very choice. Look, okay, I understand you're passionate, you're young, you're idealistic, you're zealous, you made a decision, uh, you know, you... But you don't have to die. You've got your whole life ahead of you. Your family doesn't have to die. Just worship Allah, just say you have allegiance to Muhammad. Just worship this Hindu God. Just worship in the way that your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who are so good to you did, like Buddha. Just say that you don't want to follow Jesus. You know, the uh, first century uh, church leader of uh, uh, the church of uh, Smyrna, uh, his name was Polycarp. He was martyred in 150 AD. In fact, he was the disciple of none other than John, the apostle John, John the Beloved. Uh, John, of all the 12 apostles who were martyred, uh, John lived, uh, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He was the only one who was not murdered, although he did live to be about 90 years old after being thrown into boiling water. Uh, he, he lived, he survived, he died at about 90. But one of his disciples was Polycarp, who was the pastor of a church in uh, Smyrna. Interestingly, in the book of Revelation, when Jesus addresses the seven churches in Revelation, every single church had a congratulations. Jesus said to these churches, I'm proud of you for doing this, except for one church, and they only had bad. So six churches had a congratulations, and then all seven churches had some correction except for one church. One church had only commendation, and that was the church at Smyrna, uh, Polycarp's church that he pastored. Do you know that, that Smyrna was a church that suffered intense persecution? In fact, uh, Polycarp was martyred in 150 A.D., and by this time, he was about 85 years of age when he, would be, uh, when he would be martyred. 
And so the soldiers came, and Polycarp, this is, this is historically documented, Polycarp saw the people who were coming to martyr him, and he, saw, he asked where they came from, and they told him, and he realized it was a really long journey, and they were probably hungry, and so he refused to eat until they sat down and ate until they couldn't eat anymore. And he said, and while you're eating, I just ask that you please give me one hour to pray. And he prayed nonstop for two hours. And the people who came to take him away to martyr him were just grieved and they repented. And some even placed their faith in Christ because of the love that he showed to them. And then before they killed him, they gave him an option. Here's a stake and we're going to burn you alive or you can pay homage to Caesar. And he said, I can't honor Caesar like he's a god, he's a man. I have one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so they burned him at the stake. This is the same decision that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced. And since the last five minutes, one more person in this world today, in 2016, has been killed because they faced this exact same decision. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. This is surrender. This is what it is to follow Jesus. We follow Jesus, and we pray, and we, we expect to be blessed. We, we expect for our family to be blessed. We we expect for God to deliver us. But even if not, we will still pay the price. We will still count the cost. And even if God chooses not to deliver us from being thrown into the fire, we'll still praise him because, again, the more intense the persecution, the more God will be glorified in our lives. Let me ask you this again. What price are you paying for making a stand for God? Because if you make a stand for God, the world will notice. It's obvious there's only one person standing here. That's me. Everybody's seated, and I'm standing. It's obvious when somebody is standing. And when an entire nation is bowed down on their face before a false god or before immorality, and you make a stand for God, it puts a bullseye, it puts a target on you, not only to be persecuted, but to be blessed and for God to be glorified in your life. Watch as Paul promised Timothy. In fact, he says, everyone, everyone, you and me, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is why the Apostle Paul said, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave... If he's still dead, if he's decaying somewhere, if this whole thing is, is, is a hoax, then we as followers of Jesus Christ are the most pitied of all people because look at how we lived with such persecution when we could have avoided all of it and we could have, as the saying goes, just ate, drank, and been merry for tomorrow we die in this short life. And that's the choice that we really have to make, isn't it? Do we believe that Jesus rose from the grave? Do we believe that the gospel is truth? If we really don't, then we can continue just being passive Christians. We can continue to being Christians 
as long as it's only politically beneficial at work, socially beneficial with your friends, or beneficial for your families. But the moment the heat's turned up, and the moment you have to start paying some price or counting some cost, then you back out, and nobody in the world will know that you're a Christian. And so this is the ultimate decision that we have to make. Are we going to live for eternity, or are we going to live for this life? And that's the ultimate decision of following Jesus. Are we going to live for eternity? And what impacts eternity? What matters in eternity? The rewards for eternity. Are we going to live for eternity, or are we going to live for this life? And if we decide this life is what matters to me, comfort and ease and respect and a great reputation are what matters to me, well, then you're in the wrong place. You ought to be in a country club this morning. But if eternity is what matters, if the applause of heaven is what matters, well, then you're ready to follow Christ because his kingdom is an eternal kingdom that's expanded through giving up and surrendering things in this world and paying the price and counting the cost. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Let me just read these verses again. Paul said to Timothy, everyone, not some, not many, not the unfortunate, or not the super spiritual, or not the super blessed, everyone, everyone, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And again, if you're not counting some cost or paying some price, something extraordinarily costly, then you're not following Jesus. And again, Jesus says, not many, not some, not watch out a few, not those who just want to be leaders. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must not might, must, deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Persecution is the price you pay for making a stand for God. Here's the second observation about persecution. Persecution causes us to experience Christ's presence like we've never experienced it before. We experience his presence, and we experience his peace, and we realize, oh, this world has nothing for me compared to what I've tasted of the living waters and the presence and the person of Jesus. Let's read about this in verse 19 through 25. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his armies to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing fire. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot, the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing fire. We got to pay some price. We've got to count some cost to follow Christ over not following at all. What are you giving up in order to go up in your relationship with Christ? 
Verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar, he, he leaped to his feet in amazement and asked the advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unarmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And that was an appearance of Christ, walking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that beautiful? Jesus himself, this is one of the Old Testament appearances that he made, where he walked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of their persecution. The more we follow Christ, the more we'll be persecuted. The more we're persecuted, the more we'll experience the presence and the peace of Christ. And you realize this is life. My heart is fully alive. This is what I was born for. And this world has nothing to compare with it. This is what the Apostle Paul realized when he said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ, not know about Christ. I don't want to be smart. I don't want to be theologically impressive. I don't want credentials. I don't want to be able to debate well. He's not saying, I want to know about Christ. He said, I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to really, really know him like a friend, like I've never known him before. I want to draw closer and closer and closer. I want to know him. And watch the correlation of knowing Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. How do we know Christ? How do we know his peace, his presence, his power? I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation or fellowships in his sufferings. You see the correlation? The more cost that we count, the more, the higher the price that we pay, the more we know Christ. The more we experience Christ's presence, the more we experience Christ's power. And there's a direct correlation between the price we pay and the personal intimacy that we experience with Christ. There's a direct correlation. The more ungodly the culture, the more intense the persecution. The more intense the persecution, the more we experience Christ and his power in our lives. Persecution is the price you pay for making a stand for God. Persecution causes us to experience Christ's presence and his power. And persecution, how many of you can say amen to this? Persecution causes us to grow, doesn't it? Persecution causes us to grow more like Christ. Persecution allows us to love more like Christ. Daniel chapter 3 verse 26, so... Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And watch this. And the satraps, perfects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They were in dismay. Watch this. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. And there was not, this is, this is the extent of God's power. It's not just that their heads, their, their hair wasn't singed or their clothes weren't burned. They, their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. Is that not amazing? I had a cookout at my house around the fire the other, a few weeks ago, and my clothes, I had to put them in the garage. They smelled so much like smoke. And I wasn't even in the fire. I was just beside the fire. I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, 
I wasn't the marshmallow. I, I was just roasting the marshmallows. They were the marshmallows. They were thrown into the fire. And their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. But you know what was burned? The ropes that bound them were burned away. And they were free. And this is what persecution does. Persecution isn't designed to burn you. It's designed to burn the bondage that binds you. Persecution is designed to burn the unchristlikeness and the ungodliness away so that when you come out of the persecution, oh, you look more like Christ. You smell less like the world, and you look and you live more like Christ. You ask any seasoned Christian around here, any mature seasoned Christian, how did you grow? They're not going to tell you about seminary. They're going to tell you about some persecution. They're going to tell you about some fire. They're going to tell you about some trial that they endured. Seminary is great. There's nothing wrong with seminary. But I'm just saying, the way we grow to be more like Christ is to go through the fire. That's how we grow. We read in James, Consider it all joy, my brothers. Not if. Again, not if. Not maybe, not might, not possibly. When? When you encounter various trials. Did you see that? When? Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Not, not, gosh, be dread it, uh, be discouraged. I've really got to warn you, let's get sober here. Let's get serious-minded. Trials are going to come. No, he's not saying that. He goes, consider it all joy. Consider it joy. Like a kid who's looking forward to Christmas morning. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance uh, will have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He's talking about because it builds your character. Paul said the exact same thing in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Rejoice in your sufferings. Again, like a kid looking forward to Christmas morning, having the packages with their name on them, opening the packages, not worrying about the paper wrapping that the parents might have packaged so neatly. They just tear into it. Kids don't care about the wrapping. They just tear into it. They're excited about the gift. With that kind of mindset, rejoice in your sufferings. Count it pure joy when you suffer because you're opening a gift in the midst of the suffering and the gift that you're opening is that you will smell less like the world and you will look and you will live more like Christ. That's the promise. And I can testify to you guys over and over and over in my life that any advancement I've made in my relationship with Jesus, any, any depth that my roots have grown, any traction that I have made in my sanctification of longing to be more like Jesus has been the result of persecution, of the fire, of trials, of tribulations. Where do we get this mindset? Oh, I'm doing everything right. Why is my going through this stuff? That is absolutely and utterly foreign to Scripture. probably watching too much Christian television. That's probably the problem right there. And, and not reading enough scripture, in all honesty. 
Consider it all joy, my brothers, not if, but when you encounter trials. Fourth, fourth observation about persecution. Persecution causes God to be glorified in our lives. One of the main things I am increasingly grateful for as I grow older and am gaining a little more tra traction in my sanctification is that I really, in my heart of hearts, I, I see that I... I long for God to be glorified in my life more. I know that sounds so tr simple, but I long for him to be glorified in my life. And the more I long for him to be glorified in my life, the more I realize in my past, the p part of me that remained, uh, and, and as the Lord has this sanctifying work in my life, you know the saying, less of me and all of you? And then that prayer ought to advance none of me, Lord, until it's all of you. And going through the fire, going through the persecution, it allows us to come out of it. And we say, not just, uh, you know, less of me and more of you, but none of me until there's only you. And Lord, you be glorified in my life. It takes persecution to allow us to have a sincere and pure heart like the Apostle Paul who said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. And then God is so glorified in our lives. Do you want to know why? Because people don't see us anymore. When the, when the ropes are burned away, people don't see us. All they see is Christ in us. Look at this amazing passage that Peter wrote about persecution and God being glorified, and the absolute and utter honor that it is to be persecuted because we bear the name of Christ, or because we decide to follow Christ, or because we decide to not conform to who the world says that we should be, or what the world says we should look like, but we say, I'm going to conform my life to Scripture, and how I know the Holy Spirit says, I am to live and look. It will result in persecution, but what an absolute and utter honor it is to be persecuted because we bear the name of Jesus. Dear friends, Peter writes, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. And he's referencing uh, some churches in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that are, are about to experience cataclysmic persecution from the Roman Empire. They will be thrown to animals. This isn't uh, fiction. This isn't fairy tale. This is history. They will be thrown to animals and devoured in front of a stadium of 20,000 screaming Roman fans. They will be burned at the stake. They will be sawed in two. They will be tied up and thrown into a river and drowned. Families of people, will, men, women, and children will endure this. This is the cataclysmic storm that Peter is writing about. And it's on the way. And prophetically, Peter writes, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It's normal. Jesus said it would be so. To be godly in an ungodly world not only invites, it demands persecution. And the more Christ-like we are, and the more unchristlike the world is, the more intense the persecution will be. 
It's not strange. But when it does hit, rejoice. There it is again. James said it, consider it pure joy. Paul said it, rejoice when you find yourself in suffering. And then here Peter says it, rejoice. Rejoice. Not because you have a new Mercedes. How utterly shallow. Is is our God that small that he's materialistic and is into our materialism? Is he that small? That the reward of following the king of kings, the creator of the cosmos, rewards us with with a Mercedes instead of an explorer? Is our God that shallow and small? Is that really the reward that we want for our faith? And if your faith cannot give hope to an inmate serving a life sentence in prison, it is no true gospel. If your faith does not give greater honor and dignity to a church in a third world country that walks two miles to meet in a mud hut, it is no true gospel. And when we experience persecution, we rejoice. Because we are participating in the suffering of Christ. So that we may be, here's this word over again, overjoyed when his glory is revealed in us. If you're insulted, if you're slandered, or if you're persecuted by the hand, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When persecution falls upon us, there are two questions that we must ask. The first question is involuntary, kind of like a knee-jerk reaction. The second question is a question that we as followers of Christ must develop the discipline to ask ourselves. The first question is this, why am I being persecuted? That's not an unfair question. That's not an ungodly question. That's a fair question. It's, it's, it's Christ-like. Jesus said on the cross, 100% God, 100% man, my God, my God, Why? Has thou forsaken me? David, a godly man, said in Psalm 13, akin to why is this happening? How long, O oh God, must I wrestle with my thoughts, etc.? It is okay to ask the question, why? And if you are persecuted, and if you ask the question, why? And if it comes back that you're being persecuted for being ungodly, if you're being persecuted for being unchristlike, then repent. But if you're enduring persecution and you ask why, and in your heart of hearts and you line your life up with Scripture, it comes back that you are being persecuted because of righteousness, then you must ask yourself the second question by discipline, by being a follower of Christ. And the second question is this, how might God be glorified through this persecution? And if we are ever so blessed as to shed blood for the cause of Christ, may we bleed the gospel of Jesus Christ with the hope that God will be more glorified through our persecution than he would have ever been glorified through our comfortable, long life. 
You know that church in Revelation, the church at Smyrna? You want to know what the word Smyrna means? It's, the, it's actually, it's actually the, the Greek word for a, another word, a word called myrrh. Interesting, isn't it? Myrrh? The, the, the church in Smyrna, the church that, that received only commendation from the Lord in Revelation when he addressed the seven churches. Only a, 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 a commendations, no, no, no critique, no criticism. And he said, you've been persecuted, you're going to continue to be persecuted, be faithful unto death. And oh, it's going to be worth it, he said. It is going to be worth it. Shed blood for me. It is going to be worth it. And there's a drastic difference between Christian martyrs and Muslim martyrs. It's like night and day. It's, uh, they're polar opposites. It's, it's the, they're the antithesis of one another. They're alternate universes. Muslims will strap bombs around themselves and give up their lives in order to destroy in the name of hate. But Christians never shed other blood. We only allow our own blood to be shed in the name of love in order to represent Christ, to give life and healing and wholeness. And if we are ever so honored to shed blood for the name of Christ, for the healing and the wholeness and the salvation of somebody else, know that Jesus says, as he said to the church at Smyrna, it is going to be worth it. Trust me. Smyrna actually means myrrh. Remember gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the the three wise men, or we assume they're three because they were three gifts. They took the gold, frankincense, and myrrh to honor King Jesus when he was a baby. Myrrh. What an odd gift for a baby. Myrrh. Because do you want to know what myrrh was used for? Myrrh was used to, to embalm people who had died, to prepare them for their burial. They would put myrrh in their cloths and wrap them up to give the, uh, the deceased a smell, of sweet smell of perfume. Myrrh. And yet they brought myrrh to Jesus for a birthday present when he was a child. It was a prophetic gift pointing to the way that he would die. And when Jesus did die, do you want to know what they wrapped him with? Myrrh. It means death. But it's a sweet sense and it's a perfume. Isn't that interesting? Three days after Jesus died, when his eyes opened and the resurrected Christ inhaled his first breath, the first thing that he smelled was myrrh in this world. And when Jesus was addressing the church at Smyrna, which meant myrrh because they held the exclusive uh, import to the entire, I'm sorry, export to the entire world of this spice called myrrh, he was pointing to their life as a church. You are going to be persecuted. And the, the way that the aroma comes out of the spice is that it's ground. To be ground and crushed causes the aroma to come out. And Jesus was telling the church at Smyrna, the church at Myrrh, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to suffer, you're going to be ground, you're going to be crushed, but it is going to be a sweet aroma to me, and it will be worth it. When we decide to follow Christ and we count some cost and we pay some price, it is myrrh. 
It is a death to ourselves, and it is a fragrant worship offering to Jesus Christ. And the world says, why are you counting that cost? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. You only have one life to live. Just be comfortable and say, no, I'm going to follow Christ no matter the cost, no matter the price, no matter the insult, no matter the injury, because it is going to be a sweet, fragrant aroma to Christ, and I believe what he says, that it is going to be worth it. Would you stand with me? This morning, we're going to do our invitation a little bit differently. I'm just going to pray over you, and I'm going to send you out, because our altar call this evening is not up here. Our altar call is out there. And when you leave here, when you walk out these doors, the goal is to count some cost, is to pay some price, to look more like Jesus, to act more like Jesus, to love more like Jesus. Holiness is costly. Holiness has a price. We cannot grow in holiness without counting some cost, without paying some price. But Jesus promises us over and over again, it's going to be worth it. Would you bow your heads with me? How many of you are currently experiencing persecution for following Christ? As a testimony, raise your hand. Okay. I want to ask you a very vulnerable question and a heart-searching question. How many of you want to experience some persecution for following Christ? Raise your hand. Oh, may God give us the strength. May God give us the strength. Not just the strength. May God give us the joy. May God give us the faith to rejoice. Acts 5.41, it's really awesome. The, the first persecution in the early church. So the apostles, they're preaching the gospel, and they take him in, and they say, why are you preaching that Jesus is, is something, uh, the, the people who cause his death? Are you trying to make us guilty of this man's blood? They were terrified. They couldn't contain this Christ movement. It just keeps spreading. People kept proclaiming it. And then they brought in, they brought in the apostles, and they said, listen, listen, be quiet. And here's what the apostles said. Much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the same choice. Much like about, about six Christians who just died over the last... Uh, 25 minutes have just experienced they had the same choice stop stop preaching Jesus stop saying the name of Jesus stop carrying his name just cast it down start doing the stuff that you used to do start start doing the stuff you used to do start doing the stuff everybody else is doing but stop calling yourself a Christian right now or you will die they, they, they responded here in the New Testament, the apostles, a lot like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Here's what they said. They said, you decide. You decide what's best. Should we obey you or God? And you know what they did? Because of fear of the people, they didn't kill them, although they wanted to. They whipped them, and they beat them, and they sent them out. And you want to, you want to know what the apostles did? Rejoiced. They rejoiced and praised God that they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. So, Father, you saw those hands that were lifted. 
Some are going through persecution. Some are suffering insult. Some are suffering injury. Some are suffering slander. Some are suffering disgrace. Uh, because they bear your name and because they're living in righteousness, make it worth it, Lord. Glorify yourself in their lives. To you be the glory. Lord, you saw the hands. They're not suffering persecution. They're not enduring disgrace. They're not suffering injury. Lord, but they want to. Should the need arise where they have to make a choice that the apostles made, should the need arise where they have to make a choice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make, should the need arise where they have to make a choice that yet just another Christian in this world in the last five minutes made, to pay the price to follow you, Lord, give them the strength to pay the price with joy, with great expectation, knowing they're becoming more like you, looking more like you, and you are being glorified in our lives. All right, if you would look at me. So this is our response. We are going into the mission world. Pay the price. Count the cost. Follow Jesus. Let him be glorified in your life. And when you follow Jesus, don't do it like you're beat up and beat down and the world just ran over you. Do it with joy. Rejoice because of all that is being developed in you and how Jesus is being glorified through your life. So God bless you and you are dismissed.